0: Hi guys, I'm Teresa Judais, and you know me from The Real Housewives in New Jersey. And now you'll know me from my new podcast, Namaste Bitches, with my co-host, Melissa Feaster. What's up, you guys? I'm Melissa Feaster, and Teresa and I are talking about everything. Love, life, relationships, yes, sex, food, and family. We are getting into it all. It's a real look at my life when the cameras aren't rolling. But don't worry, we'll be talking about all that TV stuff too. So follow, rate, and review Namaste Bitches now at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, everybody, Doctor Drew here. It's uh, here to remind you how important magnesium can be for many aspects uh, of our well-being and health, and. Dr. Hyman, Andrew Huberman, all are talking about magnesium, and indeed, magnesium is important, as I've mentioned many times. My fellow in uh, in endocrinology was always beating me up about magnesium supplementation. It is essential. It's a huge problem because magnesium deficiency can increase all sorts of issues. We shouldn't wait until we are deficient, and even more so, there's not just one type of magnesium. There's seven different types that we optimally need to ensure that we're getting what we need. Of course, I'm an advocate of getting as much of our nutrients as we can through a well-balanced diet, and if we could, uh, that would be fine, but it's generally impossible to get magnesium just through our food because the soil is overworked, minerally depleted, and lacking in organic matter. Plants, of course, need to get their minerals from the soil. Fortunately, Bioptimizers has a solution. Their Magnesium Breakthrough Supplement is the only product that has all seven types of magnesium. It is specially formulated to reach every tissue in the body and provide the benefits. Bioptimizers Magnesium Breakthrough gives you access to full-spectrum magnesium, which could improve your overall well-being and functioning. Right now, you can try Bioptimizers Magnesium Breakthrough and any other Bioptimizers product for ten percent off, just go to magbreakthrough.com slash Drew. That is magbreakthrough.com slash Drew and use the code doctor ten to boost your intake of magnesium and start feeling better, I trust. Hopefully. Don't wait to be deficient. Start taking the best magnesium and improve your well-being right now. Just go to magbreakthrough.com slash Drew. <laughs> And welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast, part two of my interview with Dr. Aaron Cariotti. sorry. If uh, you did not hear last week, I suggest you – this will stand alone. To be fair, we're going to talk about mass formation psychosis. But uh, if you want to really get a little post-mortem on this uh, pandemic, I do suggest you listen to that. His book on this very issue is The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Surveillance State, available pre-order on Amazon. His website, Aaron, with two A's, R k h e r a i t y K-H-E-R-A-I-T-Y.com. A. Kerati is on Twitter. Um, you know, again, just quickly, he is uh, with the Chief of Psychiatry and Ethics at Doc1Health, Chief of Medical Ethics Uni Project. He was a full professor at UC Irvine teaching in the Department of Psychiatry at all uh, all years of the medical school. One of the only teachers to have done that. a active member of the medical ethics community there suddenly lost his job, and we tell that story in the last pod. But today we're going to talk about something different. We're going, to, we're going to use his psychiatric training and talk about what happened to us. Welcome back, Doctor Cariotti.
2: Thanks, Doctor Drew. It's, it's great to be with you again.
1: So we we stopped. I stopped you mid thought last time uh, about totalitarianism. So so let's go there. Let's let's back into this again through that through that uh, entry point.
2: Very good. So when you use this word and you throw this word around and you say there are totalitarian you know, conditions in society that might lead us in that direction. It's I think it's very easy for people to dismiss you as, as sort of a, a paranoid uh, quack or a conspiracy theorist. So let me explain uh, why I'm concerned about this. And in our last conversation, we talked about a, a common thread, I think, through that conversation, talking about Lockdowns, talking about the mass vaccination campaign, talking about the new law in California that doesn't permit physicians to challenge the mainstream public health narrative
1: on COVID. And, and by the a way, I'm going to interrupt you. We may have to do a third podcast on the vaccine. We really didn't get deep into yes. that. So, but that's right. another, another <laughs> thing. But go ahead. But
2: a common theme was that for physicians, for um, uh, epidemiologists who uh, were skeptical, of the measures that we took, there was very strong uh, social pressures not to question the narrative, uh, to, to go along in order to get along. We had a situation in which I had many physicians tell me, yeah, I'm observing, I'm observing things in my, in my clinical practice, but I feel like I can't speak up because if I do, I'm going to lose my job.
1: And, and there so, was, and there was a rational component too. I, I remember when uh, lockdown was ordered by the governor here, I just shook my head. I thought, this is ridiculous. But, I, you know, he's preparing for the worst. And I don't know, maybe, you know, well, who am I to say? I'm I'm going to support my leadership and well, let's just go forward with this. I never imagined it would go on for a year or two. But there was a rational element at that point because it was a very fog of war situation.
2: Sure. I. I- actually supported two weeks to flatten the curve
1: Yeah, um,
2: for that very reason. Let's figure out what's going on. Let's get our heads straight. And let's make sure our hospitals are prepared so we don't get overwhelmed. And then we can sort of move forward. You, even and though my it, was, skepticism, it was clear
1: that something excessive was about to happen in California. Yes. It was not yeah, two weeks it, there. It yeah. was like, we're just, we're just <laughs> shutting down. And then we had a mayor in California saying insane things like there are going to be mass casualties. These are his words, mass casualties, no hope, shelter in place. That is what you yeah. say when nuclear fucking warheads are headed your direction. That's that's, that's that. Right. That what else is that? That was crazy. But anyway, you go on, please. That
2: irresponsible rhetoric, yeah. irresponsible leadership. People were very afraid, and my skepticism grew as after a couple of weeks, I started seeing the harms in my own uh, patients in my psychiatric practice, uh, and we now know a huge spike in depression, anxiety. Uh, drug and alcohol abuse and suicide during the the lockdowns. But I was noticing that after a few weeks. And so I I said, why why is this continuing? Why are we continuing to go down this path without any meaningful risk-benefit analysis of the collateral harms? Mm. But what happens in totalitarian societies before the whole totalitarian machinery uh, gets going is that you have a social climate in which people are not allowed to ask questions. So very influential political theorist named Eric Boglin, who's a 20th century uh, philosopher, he studied the totalitarianisms of the 20th century. And he's, he pointed out that the central feature of all of these totalitarian societies was not concentration camps or secret police or surveillance or, you know, men in jackboots. As horrifying as all Let me guess, let me guess the core are, thing. Let
1: me guess, language, language control.
2: That's right. That's yeah. right. And specifically, so we know George Orwell talked about this, that, you know, the Newspeak in 1984 was an attempt to control people's thinking by controlling language. And, uh, and Vogelin specifically said that the core feature is the inability to ask certain questions, the prohibition of questions. Um, and what we saw during, uh, the pandemic was not just prohibiting certain answers, but you weren't even allowed to ask the questions. You weren't even allowed to to ask a question like, does it make sense um, to lock everyone down? Does it make sense to close the schools? What are the downsides of this? Uh, I was accused of spreading misinformation, not just for proposing different public health recommendations, but even for just asking questions about our public health Recommendations. So, when society has gotten to that point, mm. uh, if you do not correct course, you are headed to places where most people do not want to go.
1: Right, seems to me. And and I I had uh, Naomi Wolf interviewed the other day, and she had said that health insecurity or, or sort of dropping in rules around health is one of the ways they are able to do this. So That's right. That, that I don't know if I believe that or not. Or I don't know if it's true or not. But it was interesting that that was one of the constructs.
2: Well, look if you if you look at um, and people freak out when you draw try to draw any sort of historical analogy to the Nazis. So let me just enter the caveat: I am not comparing our previous or our current administration to the Nazi regime.
1: You're just looking at but, it as a as a historical model.
2: Yeah, just look. look okay, how did how did a democratically elected Uh, chancellor adolf hitler become the despotic totalitarian ruler of you know people forget that he was democratically elected well one of one of the mechanisms was um a declared state of emergency so the nazis governed for almost the entirety of their time in power under article 48 of the weimar constitution which allowed for the suspension of Uh, the Constitution under a declared state of emergency, right? So (laughs) we we talked about the state of emergency in the last Mm -hmm. podcast. Uh, We also have to remember that the 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 first use of uh, gas chambers to kill people did not occur in concentration camps. The gas chambers and and the, the first people gassed were not Jews or other ethnic minorities. The first people gassed in gas chambers under the Nazis were physically and mentally disabled patients yeah. in psychiatric hospitals. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's what I under
2: thought. the Nazi T four euthanasia program and, and
1: cr- so, severely chronically ill stuff, right? Like and really, severely chronically, ill. Yeah, yeah. uh, yeah.
2: chronic alcoholism, yeah. chronic epilepsy, yeah. Uh, yeah. things of this nature that. That couldn't be cured. Um, the, the Nazis began with forced sterilization of those folks so that they wouldn't pass on their quote unquote bad genes to the next generation. Uh, and they followed the United States in that. Actually, there were forced sterilization laws in, uh, in the early 20th century in the US that the Nazis emulated. 27 states permitted forced sterilization of, uh, of so-called undesirables in the U.S. This is a dark chapter in American history that most Americans don't That's right. don't know about. So the Nazi eugenic laws prepared the way for their other totalitarian measures, and those those were in place long before the whole well, the, warfare. But the, final but the solution other thing, apparatus.
1: the other thing, one of the things that gets me sort of addled in the present moment is they 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 use totalitarian interventions as a means to prevent totalitarianism. In other words, the communist totalitarian (laughs) state was underway. That's why the present moment scares me the most because both sides are looking at each other. I'm right in the middle and I can see the excesses on both sides. And both sides are going, you're the fascist. No, you're the fascist. No, you're the fascist. (laughs) And that's exactly how Hitler came to power. He just yeah, he right. he was protecting from the fascists, from the totalitarians, yeah. and ended that's up right. using fascism to, to to prevent the communist yeah. totalitarianism. And that, that exactly is right. people that don't know that history, man, be careful. But anyway, let's let's yeah. but let's talk about the psychology of all that. That's where I want to go with yes. this. So go ahead. So how did the, how do these things happen?
2: So the the psychology, and of course the book to read here, um, you mentioned him last time was Matthias Desmet. Uh, His book is called The Psychology of Totalitarianism, just published this year, a very, very fine book. But he talks about the process of what he calls mass formation. Some people have have described it as mass formation psychosis. Desmond doesn't like the term psychosis because it indicates a particular type of clinical condition um, that he is not getting at here. But what he's talking about is a sort of social psychology, crowd psychology phenomenon where people enter almost into a... Um, a a state of, uh, of hypnosis, a a kind of, it's kind of a cognitive sleepwalking where that, that ability to ask questions, that ability to, to question what you're being told or to see what's right in front of you uh, becomes impaired. And he says, this, this happens basically when there are three social conditions in place. So I'll just walk through those three very briefly. So the first condition is that people experience a lack of connectedness to other people, a lack of meaningful social bonds. Now, we had a loneliness epidemic mm-hmm. even before the lockdowns. Yep. So rates of loneliness, you can measure loneliness with shorthand questions on surveys like, uh, "How do you have someone in your life with whom you can talk about important matters? Now, back in the 1980s, about one in five Americans, 20% said, no, I don't have anyone in my life, a family member, a friend, a colleague with Mm. whom I can discuss, you know, important uh, or personal matters, which is very sad. Yeah. But that number by 2018 was 40%. So, uh, so we had a a crisis of loneliness already that, you know, many social scientists were already talking about Obama's surgeon general Vivek Murthy was talking about an epidemic of loneliness before the pandemic.
1: Well, the, the British set up a loneliness czar. They had a position appointed right. to, to it. And That's right. I first started making note of this, God, it must have been in the late 90s, a book called Bowling Alone. Do you remember that book?
2: That's right. Robert Putnam. Yeah. yeah. He's a social scientist at Harvard. Who yeah. Who really a sort landmark of landmark work. And was yeah.
1: that the 90s when that came out? I, yeah, it might he have published that in the 90s. Ne-
2: he published that. I think it was in the late
1: 1990s. Yeah, that's what it was I was published about. in 2000. But he started working on it. In okay, so we all heard about it go. maybe late night. Okay, yeah. But but that's where you know an issue was being made of this socially disconnected. Now, in the meantime, the internet came along, and everyone right. thought that would take care of it, but it made it worse.
2: That's right. So we were, you know, online connections didn't prove uh, an adequate substitute for face to face. Encounters. So, you know, rather than walking to the cubicle, you know, uh, three spaces down and talking to my colleague, I would just send him a text message or, or an email. So, uh, so the internet connected us better to people that were further away, mm. right? I can send a text message to someone in, in Paris or, or Mumbai and feel more connected to that person. But people that are closer to me, it can actually separate me from those face to face. Connections, and then you know, on top of that, we got the lockdowns, which we t- talked about last time, and we all know what that did yeah. to this crisis of. You know, worse. i I
1: interviewed, a, I interviewed a young man. Uh, oh crap, Clifton Davis, I think I said no, no, wait, Duncan, Dunk, Duncan, Clifton, something like the Clifton Duncan, yeah. Clifton Duncan, yeah, he has two actor, first names. Right? And I, actor, I, I saw him. Yeah. I saw I saw sixty seconds of him at the podium, and I just I got to talk to this guy. He seems like such yeah. a reasonable person, and he's another guy. Who chronicled in a diary fashion what happened to him? He he highlighted a few things for me that I'd forgotten and brought it back into the you know consciousness of how this all evolved. And he said something very profound in his sort of sort of uh, own sort of spontaneous way. He said they took away from us everything that made life meaningful. Those are his that's actual right. words, and he just this sort of rolled off his tongue. And I thought, Oh my God, that's a that's right. that is a profound statement, and it is one hundred percent accurate. Isn't that interesting? And they did it, and by the way, shamed you if you had any issue on it. Hey, you sure. have to, you're greedy. You just want to go out and make money because you get your businesses. What what what? We just want to engage in life. We want to thrive. What are you talking about? Remember that? God, that was a dark phase. Anyway, so keep going. Here we are.
2: So that's that's the first condition, and you're absolutely right what I, I like to say that real present <laughs> tangible human goods were sacrificed on the altar of theoretical future biological risks. Yeah. So for example, you know you know you can't go be with your dying loved one. No you can't uh, go bury them uh, and, and attend a funeral uh, because you know there's this s- small theoretical risk of transmission and you know so our, our values were really turned upside down during the the pandemic and and as duncan said exactly things that like make life meaningful were stripped away from us for the sake of just protecting bare biological life at all costs okay so first condition is loneliness second condition is a lack of meaning in life which which follows from the the withering of those social networks, familial, professional, religious, uh, et cetera, those things that give meaning to life. Um, it, Desmet uh, mentions in this connection, there was a Gallup poll in 2017. 40% of people experience their job as completely meaningless, mm. uh, with another 20% reporting a strong lack of meaning in their work. So 60% mm. of Americans thought, my job is either mostly meaningless or totally meaningless. Um, so that's that's the second condition. Uh, social isolation, a lack of meaning, which is connected with social isolation. The third condition is high levels of free-floating anxiety. Again, think of those early days of the pandemic and what you saw when you turned on uh, CNN. You saw COVID case counts. You saw COVID death counts. You saw an obsessive uh, focus with, uh, you you know you saw pictures of people on ventilators you You saw things that were designed, and we know now that these were deliberately designed to induce fear. What do you mean by the that?
1: population because by the way, you also saw the refrigerator trucks and the body yeah. the the uh they, by the way, those refrigerator trucks in New York, do you know why they they filled up the morgues in the hospitals in New York? Do you know why Gary? the reason they did. Is they wouldn't allow the funeral homes to operate. So they yeah. couldn't have, they didn't that's have the right. usual means of taking the bodies out of the refrigerator at the hospital and sending them to the funeral homes. They had to accumulate at the hospital. That's why, not because there were so many deaths, because the normal process was obfuscated. Crazy.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, we saw the situation in northern Italy and Lombardy in those early days of the pandemic, yep. the hospital being overwhelmed. Well, yep. what they didn't tell you. Was that those hospitals were routinely overwhelmed during influenza season right. because they were inadequately funded, and this was this was something that happened to them almost every year for the last few years. But but we know um, this was revealed by uh, a group in Great Britain, for example. That Great Britain employed this behavioral nudge unit to advise the government on how to get people to comply with COVID. Recommendations mm. and internal documents from that, um, and people who participated in that and now have repented and said this was absolutely wrong to do. Um, basically, their recommendations included things like, you know, if people are not complying, then we need to ramp up messages that increase their fear.
1: Oh my so, god! So
2: fear was deliberately deployed by governments and public health agencies during the pandemic, and we have the. We and, have the receipts and, to show them, And then this. the
1: media used it as a way to capture eyes because they, they immediately exactly. saw that that was that to their gets, benefit.
2: That gets views and that gets people glued to their screen. So we have this very high level of free-floating anxiety. Well, was
1: there – What do you think that we already had because of lack of meaning-making, because of social disconnect, yeah. we already had uh, sort of a That's fertile right. anxiety soil so to speak?
2: We did. So really since the year nineteen ninety nine, rates of depressive and anxiety disorders were already rising. What do you think that is? What was it? What is that? Um, among young people, social media plays a very significant okay. role. Uh, Gene Twenge at uh, University of San Diego has done yep. a lot of important work on that on that issue. So that's pretty well documented now. Um, hi, and hi. I think, you know, hi. modern modern life and, and the pace of modern life. It, you know if especially if people lack strong social connections uh, is just very hard to manage well, let, without let me, robust community
1: i'm going to i'm going to i agree with that for sure but under that cuz i saw it happen in real time doing loveline all those years the amount of let me try to try to frame – first of all, there was a lot of abuse. So a lot of PTSD, yeah. a lot of personality disorders, yeah. a lot – like we went through a pandemic of childhood abuse. We just did. I, yeah. I guarantee you that happened. So there's that. That's right. But our families were so thoroughly destroyed during this same period mm-hmm. that the needs of the child in terms of developing a regulatory – emotional regulatory system, I would say was – almost universally deficient. So our ability to regulate emotion was already impaired by the circumstances of the last 30 years and one of the key symptoms of that is anxiety.
0: Because yeah. you're unregulated. That's, ex- you're just that's exactly right.
1: All right. So I wondered right. if that what was we, the case.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. What we call insecure early attachment yeah.
1: relationships. Yeah. And, and, I'm, and not gonna say, not I'm, not, I'm not even going to say. I'm not. I'm not even going to say that. I'm going to say not enough time spent face to face developing yeah. that regulatory system that yeah. may that may have insecure attachment attached uh, associated with, or it may not. It's still a, a a problem with regulation either way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've heard me talk about AMCN. I, I've taught you that uh, insurance, health insurance, doesn't always cover the cost—the full cost—of an emergency medical flight. Even with comprehensive coverage, you can still get hit with substantial deductibles and copays. Protect your family and your finances with an Air MedCare network membership. As a member, if an emergency arises, the expense of air medical transport is completely covered when flown by an AMCN provider. Membership costs as little as $85 a year and covers your entire household every day. Even when you're away from home, that is just pennies a day. We all know that the unexpected can happen. An AMCN membership is protection no family should be without. And for a limited time, as a Dr. Drew podcast listener, you will get up to a $75 e-gift card when you join. So it's $85 a year, and then a $75 e-gift card? Uh, why not? You just simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew and use offer code Drew. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. It can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode, yeah, especially when you're stressed and distracted or, de- or depressed. Therapists can help you become a better problem-solver, more efficient at uh, getting to where you can accomplish what it is you want to do. And with better help, you no longer have the excuse of stigma or embarrassment. You're doing it uh, electronically, and so you're not going to run into anybody or anything like that. Therapy has been very important in my life. I've sent many patients, family, friends – to BetterHelp, and I've been impressed with the therapeutic services they provide. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey, and you can even switch therapist any time if you're unhappy. Just switch therapist. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Drew today to get ten percent off your first month. That is BetterHelp.com dot slash Drew.
2: Okay, so you get these three conditions, you have you have this widespread free, free floating anxiety. And by free floating, I mean there's not a specific object for the anxiety, right? If I if I have a fear of snakes and I encounter a snake, and, and I, I get scared, Right. I can explain why I feel that. And me. you can, and, pull, can and, actually, you,
1: and you go away from the snake. Yeah.
2: I can do something about yeah, it. Yeah. Exactly. I can avoid going to the reptile section of the zoo. Yeah. I can avoid hiking <laughs> on those trails in Arizona where I might encounter a rattler. So it gives me a sense of agency and control over that fear so that I can escape from it. When you have free-floating anxiety produced by the conditions that we just described, People, it's a a highly aversive condition that people want to escape from, but they don't have the wherewithal, they don't know how to escape from. So early days of the pandemic, I'm glued to CNN. Um, I'm terrified. I feel like the apocalypse is coming and I don't feel like I can do anything about it.
1: Right. I had somebody in a newsroom in a in a major news outlet actually come up to me and go, "Do you think this is a what's what's the word? Any, do you think this is an extinction event for humanity?" And I I literally I went, but, "What?" <laughs> I was like, "What? Where do you how what have yeah. we done to you? How did this yeah. how did that even occur to you?" The other strange the other most strange thing everybody ever asked me was when I had COVID, I had Delta, I had bad COVID, you know, moderate severe case, and were you scared? No, I had a 1% fatality rate. Why would I even think about that? It's right. 99% I, I don't win the lottery. No, not. not just doesn't work yeah. like that. Anyway, so right. whatever. So here we are. Yes.
2: So so this leads – all of this leads to high levels of frustration and aggression in the population. So if Ooh, you tell, feel, Make that connection this,
1: for me. I don't, I don't make that yeah. connection automatically. He, Go ahead.
2: Here's how it works. If people feel socially disconnected, they feel like their life makes no sense or lacks meaning, perhaps – now, because they can't go to work, they can't go to school, they can't see their friends, they can't visit family, they're, they're beset by free-floating anxiety and psychological distress without a clear cause. Uh, this leads to a sense of frustration and anger that I can't do something about these circumstances of my life, but it's hard to know where to direct that anger. People look for an object for their anxiety, and they look uh, for an object uh, for their frustration and their, um, their, their sense of feeling paralyzed under these conditions. If authorities advance a narrative through the mass media, indicating an object for their anxiety or providing a target for this frustration, um, then this offers people, um, a way to manage their anxiety and their anger, it it offers some temporary relief from their situation. So if the problem is people are not staying at home or they're not wearing a mask or they're not socially distancing or they're not complying with all the rules, um, you know, they're putting your life at risk. They're the dangerous ones. Uh, We remember the rhetoric early on in the mass vaccination campaign about the pandemic of the unvaccinated right, and the way in which the unvaccinated, even though the vaccines did not prevent infection and transmission, um, nonetheless, the public health authorities ran with that story that COVID is still spreading because people haven't gotten vaccinated. Well, this creates a new solidarity, right? Uh, So the the good people who are wearing a mask or the good people who got vaccinated, the good people who are following all of the rules, develop a kind of social solidarity with one another right they they feel connected to a cause uh they feel connected to a solution they feel morally that i am one of the good people which is also a, a thing that psychologically makes people feel good life begins to feel meaningful and connected again i'm part of the solution to a crisis and if we can unite against the bad people the dissidents the people who are saying, well, lockdowns may not actually be be doing anything, uh, then uh, then we can maintain that sense of connection. So when when some epidemiologist or, or some medical ethicist comes along and says, you know, I, I actually don't think lockdowns are really going to make a difference. The virus is going to spread anyway. People in this mass formation are Going to have a lot of psychological obstacles to even entertaining that possibility. Why? Because you're taking away my source of solidarity. You're taking away my source of agency and control. If I stay at home and stay behind my Zoom screen and wear my mask, then I'm going to be okay. Now you got this guy at Stanford saying, well, it, it might not make any difference anyway. You're, you're kind of asking me to go back into that highly aversive state that, um, that this this
1: locus of proposed control
2: solution locus of this control, locus of control yeah. is giving me so I think that's a lot of what happened with yeah. with the masks right and and our public well, health
1: well Desmet bureaucrats says, even
2: said that at
1: times yeah but Desmet said something one of the, one of the most um, enlightening part of his construct that I found when when I heard him say it I was like ooh that's good he said that as you form this social connection and this locus of control. The more outrageous the demands by the group, the, the right. more – and the more That's disconnected right. they are from reality, the more right. you cling to them as a signal of your solidarity with the group. That's so right. So now there are, I drive through a particular town every morning to go to my office where everybody wears masks outdoors. And I just yes. th- I just think oh, I think like, what did we do to these people? How did-? and this is you know zero utility, zero reason, yeah. nothing going on in the community. And I thought, oh, Desmond got it. They're signaling all the time. It's it's like t- tipping tipping their hat to anybody they walk yeah. by. It's like I'm part of you. I'm part of this. We're we're together on this. We're the good people, right?
2: And, and masks were important in that regard because they were public and visible.
1: Yep. Yep. Right. Yep. So
2: we had the myth of asymptomatic spread. Yeah. Which never had any scientific basis. The driver of of spread for COVID has never been asymptomatic people. It's, it's never the case with any respiratory virus. We had no reason to believe that that might be true. But the possibility that asymptomatic people might spread it turned every other person into a potential threat to my existence.
1: That's right. 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 So And and by the way, we also had to get the buy-in on the threat to the existence part. These were all young people with zero threat to their existence, exactly, (laughs) virtually zero. The
2: the age stratification (laughs) was never mentioned. And we had that data early on that if you're under the age of 70 and you're healthy, you're going to survive COVID. Don't worry about it. If you're over the age of 70, there's some... Modest risk, but we can you know, we can we can mitigate that with focused protection. And, and, Nobody and, ever and, talked about.
1: that. In every case I know of that it, where a young person went bad, where went really bad, uh, there, there were sort of three circumstances: obesity, uh, chronic illness like severe chronic yep. illness, yeah. and lack of care by the physicians. With number three being the most common way that things went very yeah. very bad. They were ju- right. they were told to go home and don't worry about it. I was like, okay, I won't even think about it. I'm a little short of yeah. breath, but so what? You know, that that was the egregious part, in my opinion. For the yeah. for the for disastrous, the, disaster disastrous, disastrous. Yeah, yeah
2: disastrous. Um, absolutely. So yeah, ma- masks are a visible sign that I'm I'm okay, that I'm safe. Not only do they give people a false sense of agency and control. If I don my mask or if I double mask, then I'm going to be okay. But yeah. if I see you walking down the street and you have a mask. Then you're part of the and, good and you're, group and you're not I a threat
1: yeah I can trust you you're, you're not, not a threat. threat you're part of the good group yeah 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 right yeah. so
2: the, the vilification of the unmasked and you know your, your example the, the more absurd it is the more the more it serves that symbolic function you know you, you think of the people walking into it so here in California we had to walk into a restaurant with a mask on and then when we sat down at the table or the booth we could take the mask off and of course you say this is absurd you know why are why are people doing this well if you understand it from a public health perspective it's nonsensical if you understand it from the perspective that you just described it actually makes sense
1: desmond called them rituals he goes, the, the more the, yeah, the, the rituals right. devolve evolve and they're more absurd the more disconnected from anything meaningful and real the more people cling to them that's right. just so awful it's so terrible but it's so yeah. true it makes me laugh it's so true yeah. L- let me let me um back around to a couple other questions um is the sort of trump derangement that was going on already this underway and just the covid put this all on total steroids
2: yeah i i think so um i i mean covid was a way to defeat trump and it actually worked so the bigger the covid threat and um and but, but the more I, but problematic the threat. Not
1: just that sort of procedural part of it, but was this mass formation already underway sort of, quote, mm-hmm. because of Trump? Because here's what, here's what, here's what I'm, I'm thinking about. I know Desmond doesn't like to use the term psychosis, but I literally, before COVID, was was shaking my head going, oh, my God, there are people walking around all over the place saying – there's a Russian operative in the uh, in the right. Oval Office, right. and they're seeing Nazis everywhere. If you had said that to me in 2016, I would have put you in the hospital for psychotic <laughs> for psychotic illness. Right. Now, right. You, you would have been schizoaffective or schizophrenia or, or some yeah, yeah. Du- something, some mania uh, uh, I, or, or histrionic. I, I don't know what's going on with you, but that is a psychiatric disorder. But it was just commonplace. So I already was seeing – and my theory at the time was – God, I saw this narcissistic turn to Cluster B. We're all Cluster B yeah. now. Maybe we've gone all the way to histrionic, which was something I didn't, yeah. I never saw so much yeah. of that. I'm not sure that's what happened. I don't think that's it. I think it's more of a. Go ahead, you tell me.
2: No, I, I, I no, I think that's a really important insight. I think at a at a lower level, but still significant level than we saw during the pandemic. Prior to the pandemic, we had mass formation going on going on politically and this, this amplified a lot of those categories. And again, that explains some of the weird, um, you know, accusations that were leveled, for example, against people who might be questioning the safety and efficacy of the vaccines. The first thing people would say, if you raised any questions about Trump, are these you're a Trump tested, supporter, you're a Trump,
1: you Which it was bizarre, 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 bizarre. And,
2: and you sort of say, wait, wait a minute, Operation Warp Speed, <laughs> the development of these vaccines were his was done, was done by Trump. <laughs> Trump has championed the vaccines throughout the pandemic. He's never reversed course on that. That was a he considers the vaccine development to be a feather in his cap. Mm -hmm. And so if you try to understand it in terms of like political policy categories, it doesn't make any sense. But if you understand it in terms of this mass formation where the good people are in this political camp and the bad people are in that political camp, then you can you can make sense out of it, I think, psychologically, even though it. Yeah. Obviously, doesn't make any sense logically.
1: Yeah, and it's what is has there been a, a personality evolution of some type, or is it just already that cluster B t- getting taken advantage of with the mass formation as a separate phenomenon? Yeah. So
2: I I reviewed a book a few years ago uh, called the Narcissism Epidemic. You mentioned narcissism, and this looked at social science data uh, thirty years ago versus today, specifically among college age students, young people and this was published i think around the year 2000 so this couple of decades old already but but already at that point basically we were seeing higher rates not necessarily of full blown narcissistic personality but disorder traits traits but traits yeah. in society exactly and the yeah. book tried to unpack you know what were some of the social factors some of which we've already talked about on the show that may be contributing to that so it does seem that personality formation occurs not just, you know, we know that there's a genetic component to it, which is, you know, not going to be that alterable, but uh, but there's also an acquired, you know, uh, component to it. There's temperament, which is sort of the inbuilt innate genetically driven stuff. And then there's character, which builds on top of that foundation and refines our traits. And that is influenced not just by family and early life experiences, but by, by the whole social Milieu and by the culture. Hmm. Um, And so I think it's not implausible to posit this idea that certain um, personality traits and even certain disordered personality traits may be on the rise if you have a society um, that is not functioning well and that is where we don't have healthy, robust connection.
1: So I I ran a Department of Medicine, a psychiatric hospital for many years, and I arrived there in 1985. And at that point, you know, we used to do the multiple axes forms on every admission. Yep. And Axis 2 was all over the place. C category, yep. A, they're all. They're, I saw obsessive compulsive personalities, all kinds of stuff. By 1990, it had shifted all to cluster B. And then cluster it, B. it never came off. It just was yep. only cluster B after that. That was it.
2: Yep. I've seen, I've seen uh, yeah. the same thing yeah. in terms of my training versus my. My later career, yeah, yeah. isn't that A Cluster B? Yeah. Just, just for the audience, this would be uh, narcissistic, histri- uh, histrionic personality disorder, uh, antisocial personality disorder, and um, borderline. Uh, there's one I'm forgetting. Borderline. Yeah, border, of course, borderline Who personality. Can forget
1: the borderline disorder. It's an interesting. Uh, so, Doctor Freud, there's folks- something interesting going on there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> folks, folks can look up those conditions if they're huh. curious what those words. Designate. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, you know, a little research on those terms would be revealing.
1: So so there it is. So that's the construct. Now, what do we do? How, how does this work? How do you fight against it? Is there, is there what's the, are there moments? I always like to, you know, I always look at history. Is there, is there, are there historical moments where people have turned back from this? The, the other thing that yeah. you know, I was uh, early on, sort of onto this, like maybe probably 10 years ago. And I – actually, it was 20 years ago. I wrote a book on narcissism and I said there's going to be scapegoating and mob action. That's one of the things that happens when there's a lot of cluster B around. Uh, And and the scapegoating mechanism is what we've been talking about here where you – we're good, they're bad. And you scapegoat others as a way of managing your aggression. You scapegoat the other guy. and you know that ends up in guillotines. I, I used to – I said there's going to be guillotines. I didn't know about social media. I didn't know there was Twitter. Twitter is the modern guillotine, the modern public square for, for the beheading. But we've kind of been through it. You know, We're kind of a little bit on the other side of it I think and people like you and me are able to freely talk about this now without getting crushed. Uh, though there's still plenty of stuff that goes on sure. when you try to talk. Yeah. Um, is that just the answer, just to keep talking or is there something more to be done? that's
2: that's part of the answer um it's also important i think for people to uh begin overcoming their fear so you know we've been faceless with the you know masks became face coverings which is a very interesting term yeah uh, to to meditate on yeah yeah um we've been afraid to encounter people face to face so my my advice, based on what we know now, and actually what we knew before the pandemic about cloth masks uh, and surgical masks for aerosolized respiratory viruses, uh, there's no reason to wear those masks, certainly not outside. So begin overcoming your fear by letting go of this magical talisman. Um, and that I think that's the first step. We have to overcome our fear. We have to be willing to encounter one another face to face again. The next step is to begin building your real non-virtual social connections to, to start being with people again
1: to start um, thriving you know, to, to, thriving to start thriving yeah, being with thriving people serving again. people, so grading with people, people. that's that, what makes it's life meaningful a Global
2: phenomenon yeah. I'm not a. am not an expert I'm not a politician I'm not a phys- you know what can I do well you can you can I don't know start a book club. Uh, start a conversation club to, to listen to this podcast and then meet face-to-face together you know, at a local pub or a local restaurant and just discuss, discuss it, share ideas. Um, I, I think people have become uprooted by the pandemic and we need to regain our sense of, of rootedness in our communities, in our families, uh, in our schools. Right? The schools were closed. The professional uh, offices were closed. Families were not permitted even to see one another. So we have to start pushing back against that and reestablishing our social bonds. And that's something that everyone can participate in at a, a low level, just by beginning to um, well, and, beginning and it, to do that on a small scale. It just scale occurs
1: to me too know. that people like you need to take these things to the courts. We got to go to the courts and the legislature, and we've we we got to, to take legally, real, take real right. action. Hey, there are a few calls that have come in while we've been talking. Do you have time to answer some of them with me? Sure. Yeah. Let's do this. Uh, this one, I think, is kind of pertinent to you, and so I'm going to get uh, – Jeff, what's going on? Hey, Drew, how are you guys doing? We are good. I'm here with Dr. Cariotti as well. <laughs> what do you got?
0: Thanks. Yeah, so um, with, with what you guys are talking about, I mean, it came out in the New York Times today, just the levels of learning loss, yeah. you know, the impact on kids and, you know, obviously with mental health as well, but really yeah. just their education. What do you do? How do you get like a society of kids that's a year or two behind? And,
1: and not only just what, kids, what we kids that are already burdened. with a, yeah. The kids that you claim to want to protect are the ones you've burdened the most. Yeah. Dr. Cariotti, what do you say?
2: Yeah, that, that's a really hard question. Um, I mean, it's, it's stiff competition for the worst pandemic policy, but, <laughs> you know, school closures would certainly be in the, the running for that dubious distinction. Uh, really disastrous, and I worry that the effects are going to be felt on that for decades. So I think the first thing that we need to do is pay attention to the the, the kids who are at the bottom of the socioeconomic uh, ladder. What does that you mean know, this idea that kids? Pay kid,
0: attention. Kid, so.
1: It's easy to say that. What does that mean? <laughs> on average, Americans spend ninety percent of their time indoors. According to the EPA, indoor air could be two to five times more polluting than outdoor air and, in some cases, could contain 100 times more polluted elements. According to the 2020 report, nearly half population, almost 165 million people, are living in areas with unhealthy levels of ozone or air pollution. Nine out of 10 people breathe air that exceeds the World Health Organization pollution limits. We take in about 20,000 breaths per day, and that's almost 3,000 gallons of possibly problematic air. The number one allergy trigger is airborne allergens such as pollen, pet, dander, dust, mites, actually dust mite, feces, and mold. So what is the solution? Well, air doctor filter cuts out dangerous contaminants and allergens so your lungs don't have to put up with this. 99.99% of tested bacteria and viruses allergens can vary in size, but the average pollen size is about 25 microns. Air Doctor virtually removes 100% of particles as small as 0.003 microns in size. Air Doctor features Whisper Jet fans that are 30% quieter than the fans found in ordinary air purifiers. Air Doctor comes with a no questions asked 30 day money back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund. So head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code DREW. And depending on the model, you'll receive up to $300 off. You are saving up to three hundred dollars. Lock this special offer by going to a i r d o A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O, c t o r p r o. That's airdoctorpro. dot com and use promo code Drew.
2: Right. So, look, we we these these kids need remedial help, and they need resources, yeah. and they you know the, the kids who had a, a parent who was able to take some time off work or work from home and help coach them through the Zoom schooling and make sure they kept up on their homework. Those kids are going to be they were harmed, but they're going to be less harmed by the kids who, you know, if, if mom or dad doesn't work, we we're, we're not paying rent and we're going to be evicted and so the the kid is by himself trying to navigate this. And in the LA Unified School District, um during the the lockdowns, 30% of students on any given day did not even log in oh, I'm sure. to yeah. their class. I'm not talking about didn't do their homework or, or you know, missed didn't, part didn't, of the no, day. They, and no, they and didn't by the log way, in
1: and, and, we're, and were lost to follow up completely. They, they I, did not I, just didn't log in. They never know what happened to them.
2: So, I mean, the, the school districts, and this has to start at the local district level, obviously with support from the state, um, <laughs> also with support from federal grants. But we need to find those kids, and we need to we need to apologize to them and their families for what we did to them. And then we need to work as hard as we can to help them catch up.
1: Um, and, and, I, and and it's going to be almost impossible. That's the reality. It's
2: it's I, I, yeah, I, it's hate, to yeah, it's I hate to say that. Yeah, but it's mind boggling. I hate to say that. but you just you just can't you just can't shut down school for two years.
1: You, you, you know and what? Expect
2: I, I, to be able to catch up developmentally. It's, it, it's a, yeah, human it,
1: development doesn't work. Listen, that way. Aaron. What I kept saying to people when the closures were going on and on. I, I pointed out to everyone that when the Ukrainian women and children left Ukraine for Poland, there was a big exodus, if you recall. The men were left behind to fight. These women went with their children to Poland. I, I saw woman after woman coming to a country where they didn't speak the language, and the reporters were putting the microphone in their face, and every single woman said, oh, it's horrible. You know, it's, We're so scared for our men. We got to get these kids in school. They've been out of school for two weeks. It's been two weeks. We got to get them in school. They put them in school in Polish speaking schools because they'd been yeah. out for two weeks. That's completely unacceptable. I, I was yeah. kept watching that, going, "Oh my god, she is so they are so right." And look at us. Look how just how pathetic we are.
2: Yeah, I mean, what happened to what happened to those parental instincts in Western nations? It it absolutely boggles the mind. Yeah. Um, that that we thought that uh, Google Classroom could be a substitute yeah, yeah. for in-person learning, and it's 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 been a disaster. So I wish I could be more optimistic and say, yeah, I've got a policy plan to fix this. Um, I, I think we, at this point, it's it's how can we minimize the damage yeah. that was done? Yeah. The idea that we can reverse it, I don't. It's sad to say, I don't think is realistic.
1: Ms. Walker, you have a question or comment?
0: Um. There is, I do have a question about the school year coming up. Yeah. One of the things that I noticed in the news is that they are not doing a full coverage about the Moderna shot being the booster. Yeah.
1: Um, oh, you <laughs> you know, we, you probably uh, weren't listening. We've done an hour and a half on this topic, <laughs> uh, on this sort of insanity with which stuff is rushed out and then mandated. Yeah. Uh, is there a, you have a specific question about that?
0: Well, well, uh, obviously, there's a feeling of trustworthiness or lack of trustworthiness yeah. in the presidency. And so, therefore, if you're telling me that I've got to do a booster shot just in case I might fall in sick, I want to know which company is backing it. Now, I see that ABC News follows in that. But if you're advertising it in the news, you could um, arouse suspicion.
1: Yeah. So,
0: maybe so you're yeah, you're me- you're
1: absolutely spot on. You're talking about the incestuousness of all these different organizations yeah. with big pharma. You are correct. Not to say, and and again, I and let me state my position. Uh, I have a large geriatric population. Um, all of them have been vaccinated. They've all been boosted. I've told them to hang out until this new Omicron one comes along. It's pretty clear what we're doing over the age of seventy. It's a good thing. Under the age of fifty there was just a big study that came out uh, in circulation two days ago that showed five times the risk still small be it it small but five times the risk of myocarditis under the age of 40 in otherwise healthy people who have essentially no risk from COVID so what are we doing here guys what what are we up to every doctor should be making that decision with their patient not these idiots at the top of the ladder but go ahead Dr. that's
2: exactly right this needs to be age stratified it needs to be individualized to the specific patient the the vaccine mandate have no more place when it comes to these vaccines. The CDC just a couple of weeks ago endorsed the the position in my lawsuit against the University of California's vaccine mandate that we should no longer discriminate between vaccinated and unvaccinated because the vaccines do not stop infection and transmission, even if they might help uh, with severe disease, particularly in the older population. And natural immunity uh, confers some protection against covid so the universities that are continuing with these vaccine mandates are now contradicting the cdc's guidance cdc should have been saying this a year ago when i you know i and others were trying to make this case in the federal courts but at least they they finally came around to some degree of sanity on that question and then these, and yet the universities are still unwilling to yeah,
1: they're gonna have to that. get they're it's gonna crazy. have to get they're gonna have to get sued. I I am uh, traveling to Europe, to Spain in the summer, and they have a booster mandate there. I've had COVID twice. I've sat in the room with my wife for three days while she had Omicron. I didn't get anything. I'm that immune to it now. Yeah. I've had J&J. I had a horrible reaction to J&J. I developed a spontaneous raccoon eye, which is the presentation of the transverse sinus thrombosis. So I had some sort of consumptive coagulopathy. I was sick of shit. I don't want another booster. You know, who knows what will happen to me? So that's the insanity we're all in. And I may have to take it just because. Matt, you have a question about depression.
0: Yeah, thanks, Dr. Drew. I used to listen to you as a kid on K Rock. Um, now I have my own kids. Everyone in high school seems to be depressed. The kids are cutting themselves. They're going to uh, counselors all the time. It's, you know, numbers are way up since 2014. Wondering your opinion about what's the cause of this increase in mental illness. All
1: right, hold on. we got a psychiatrist here. This is a perfect question for him. We kind of alluded to it a couple of times, but spell it out for him.
2: So several of the things that we've talked about in this episode certainly contributed. Um, School closures, most of all. So we saw uh, there was a CDC study actually in the summer of uh, 2020 showing that during the lockdowns, rates of depression um, had tripled and rates of anxiety disorders had quadrupled. And uh, so the, the social isolation, the being at home and having all of my interactions with my peers, being on social media, was not good for our kids, uh, not to mention the, the, just the learning and cognitive losses from being in a suboptimal learning
1: environment. And, and you know what else? I, I think there's a certain amount of PTSD here, too, or some sort of low-level yeah. PTSD That's adding right. to the depression and anxiety. That's right. So w- what can
2: we do about this? Again, I, I would give young people the same advice uh, that I've given already on this show. Minim- first of all, minimize screen time. And it would I think it would take another episode to explain the effect of social media, especially certain types of social media on teenagers. We could get into that on another occasion. But but there is a direct linear relationship between the amount of time spent on a screen and poor mental health outcomes for young people. So minimize screen time, uh, put some strong controls on the smartphone uh or get, get rid of get a flip phone no. i mean some people are taking these measures and they report i feel much better and i'm, I'm much healthier um, work on those face-to-face encounters those face-to-face connections um, you know a phone call is better than a text message an in-person meeting is better than a, a phone call so young young people need to be with one another they need to be with their peers and they also need to be in multi-generational environments where they're around younger people and they're around older people and they're part of a family or part of a local community where they feel connected to people. That's what gives people a sense of meaning and purpose in life. Uh, Students that have been uh, traumatized by what what has happened uh, need that social support more than anything. And and some of them will need specific mental health interventions like psychotherapy, uh, or even if the depression is more severe, perhaps uh, medications if they're used. Judiciously, can, can be helpful for kids whose depression or whose trauma has been severe enough that it's really impairing their daily functioning.
1: Thanks, Matt. Appreciate that. This is uh, Matt has a speci- another Matt with a specific question. What do you want to ask us, Matthew? Hey, Dr. Drew. Hey, man. Can you hear me? Yeah, we hear you. Um,
0: good. Yes, I love following you on Gutfeld and on Teen Mom's after show mm. and um I was diagnosed with schizophrenia at twenty
1: five.
0: Mm. Um so I've been on medication ever since. Good. And I have um I've had some bad experiences with non compliance mm-hmm. where um like a psychiatrist appointment went wrong and yeah. um my psychiatrist sent like police to my house to bring me inpatient again. Uh so I that happened three times. Um, and so now he has retired, my psychiatrist, so I see a nurse practitioner, Janika Miles, and she just, I just saw her a few weeks ago, and she wants to increase my Invega from 410 milligrams to 546 milligrams.
1: Okay, hold on, let's hear what uh, Dr. Cariotti has to say about that. Yeah. It's kind, of, kind of an awfully so- specific thing, we don't know your case in detail, but go ahead.
2: So, so first of all, uh, Matthew, I, this is a very difficult illness to deal with, and I, I'm sure you've been through a lot of really difficult times. I'm sure many of your encounters with the medical uh, and mental health system have have sometimes been challenging. So, you know, my heart goes out to you.
1: However, because, I am um, so glad he's on a long acting agent. So yeah, so few yeah. get on that, and that will help him so much. I
2: agree. This can help with medication compliance. These injectable. Um, antipsychotic meds that can last several weeks to to a month.
1: Is that risperidone in Vega? Is that ris- really helpful?
2: Well, uh, so in, in Vega is uh, nine hydroxy risperidone. Okay, it's, yeah, yeah. it's a version. It's a cousin yeah. of uh, risperidone. Yeah. And so, in terms of a, a particular decision about your medications, I am a psychiatrist, but I haven't evaluated you, so I can't give a specific recommendation. Um, I can't say, you know, whether I endorse the recommendation of your uh, psychiatrist or nurse practitioner or not. What I would say is that if, if you're not sure about the advice that you're getting, um, try to get a second opinion. That's always something that patients should avail themselves of. So if there's another uh, NP or another, uh, you know, psychiatric NP or, or psychiatrist that you're able to consult with, uh, it's not that you're going to abandon, you know, your, your former provider, uh, it's just that you know, hey, I want to run this by someone else who may have a different perspective. So hard that maybe
1: the system. Now it's so hard, you know. What I mean, it's hard it enough to get them it any is. care, let alone a second <laughs> opinion. But yeah, man, I, Matthew, um, tough illness, tough system. Uh, I'll just say, in generally speaking. I would say it's not a massive increase in his medication. I'm sure she has a good reason to want a little adjustment. So just think about it. Maybe talk to your family too. You know, Maybe they're seeing something that you don't see that she's trying to respond to. Maybe you trust them a little more. I, I heard you say, Matthew, that trust is a major issue, and I understand why it would be. And it's also part of that illness. Part of the illness makes you not trust people. So just kind of ask around. See if other people are seeing things that they worry about uh, with you. And that's what that nurse practitioner is trying to kind of get at. Uh, Colin, last question. Hey, Doc. I appreciate you doing all this. Um, I had a specific question regarding these weird blood clots that I keep hearing about. I mean, if you'd have told me about this four years ago, I would never have believed it. But I've heard it. I've heard Dr. Malone allude to it during your interview. I've heard Steve Kirsch openly talk about it. I've heard several people at this point. I was wondering if you had had firsthand experience with this stuff, or had looked at it because it doesn't appear to be a traditional blood clot. It seems kind of weird. Have you seen it? I, I have not have heard about it. Obviously, like you said, I heard Malone mention it yesterday. Do you know anything on this, Aaron? No, I yeah.
2: in terms of whether these blood clots differ in terms of the mechanism of their formation or not, I think most of these suggestions have come actually from coroners, from pathologists yeah, that, right. that look at these things all the time and they say, okay, there's something different, there's something weird about these clots. I think that the jury is still out and it will take some time to sort out there, there what's is, going on there.
1: I, what I will say is when I heard this stuff flying around, I, I thought to myself, there is no doubt that this, probably the spike protein, is having some very strange right. uh, endothelial effect. So the lining of our arteries, are very, it's an organ system, the lining of our arteries, and that organ system is affected by our circulating lipids, our circulating immune system, and our platelet function, our clotting function, and the clotting system itself. Something is going on between the macrophages and the lining of the, of the, of the arteries with the spike protein, protein activating something. It's why I ended, yeah. w- woke up with a, with a black eye. It's why I had a black eye. No doubt in my mind, that was a consumptive coagulopathy caused by the vaccine. I didn't have that from COVID, I don't think. I had a lot of neurological symptoms, and we do think that might be microvascular, and that might be clotting too. So COVID might cause it. Vaccine might cause it. It might be the spike protein that's really the whole story in terms of activating these things. The problem is the spike protein is what we have to direct our immune system at, right, in order to get the the immunity going, so it, these are very complicated issues. I, I don't have a strong opinion on it yet. I'm keeping my eye on it. And, Colin, I, I'm glad that you are too. And we should all be just, just thinking about stuff. It's all. Just expand. Just, don't, don't, get, don't start running to one side of the boat or the other. That's mass formation. That's what yeah, you want to avoid. Right. You want to sit yeah. there and think about stuff. Science – and by the way, that's also bad science. Science is not one article – it's multiple articles that develop a consensus over time, done with different, you know, sort of from different centers with different um, emphases in terms of how they, how they construct the study and maybe even some different statistical analysis. So you can sort of see, you know, how, how truthful is this? How close to the truth are we getting? Don't run from one side of the boat to the other. Don't do that. That is mass formation. Well, Aaron, we've done a lot today. Uh, and I hope it helps sell your book. I can't wait to read it now. Thanks, Peter. Um, yeah, again, I'll say it's the new abnormal, the rise of the biomedical surveillance state. Pre-order now from Amazon, everybody. Go get it. Also, follow Dr. Cariotti at AaronCariotti.com, Twitter at A. Cariotti. I'm not sure if I'm following you on Twitter. I, I must be, but I'll make sure I am. And uh, thank you for all your time and uh, for this really interesting conversation. I, I I would argue that what we, in these two hours, you know, two clinicians talking, right? We've both lived through this pandemic. But we've also both been exposed to a lot of the voices that have been silenced. So I, yeah. think, w- I think what we went through was sort of a synthesis of what we think we know now. <laughs> it's it right. was a pretty broad, yeah. interesting kind of synthetic kind of look at where we are at the present moment. We may change our ideas. That's what we do. I hope we do. I like my mind to expand. I, like, I hope so too. Yeah. I mean, that's what good science. <laughs> yeah. Good exactly.
2: science evolves. Exactly. with. Open-mindedness, uh, the intellectual humility to say I might be wrong yeah. about this. You know, I, I don't think I am. I think I'm reading reading this correctly, but I might be wrong, and I want to remain open to that. So you're absolutely right. You shouldn't go from one extreme to the to the other. You should be careful and thoughtful, and just continue asking questions.
1: There you go. Aaron Cariotti, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the Swing and sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital Production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr.
2: This month, celebrate
0: Hispanic Heritage Month with Pluto TV. Watch movies with the biggest stars like Eugenio Derbez in No eres tú, soy yo, and Luis Gerardo Méndez in Camino a Marte. Plus, Pluto TV has thousands more movies and TV shows and
2: over 45 channels in Spanish, all for free. So download the Pluto TV app on all your favorite devices and start streaming today. Pluto TV. Drop in, watch free.